0: Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. All are available on all podcast platforms. You can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at bairdo37. There are several dark chapters in Canadian history, from our own slavery history, to our treatment of the Indigenous, and the interment of those we deem to be enemy aliens. One of the worst, though, was implemented in 1885 and would survive into the 1920s, only to be replaced by something even worse. It was the Chinese head tax, and it remains a stain on the history of Canada. When Canada was building the Transcontinental Railway, the government wanted to get the railroad built fast and cheap. To accomplish that, 17,000 laborers were brought in from China and the United States to work on the rail line. Those Chinese laborers would deal with terrible conditions, were paid one-third of what their co-workers made, and dealt with immense racism. As workers from China came into the country, there was also a backlash against their immigration, especially in British Columbia. In 1878, the British Columbia government would attempt to pass a law that would ban all Chinese immigration to the province. That was struck down by the courts, and not for the reason that it was incredibly racist. Instead, it was struck down because the courts ruled that it was beyond the jurisdiction of a provincial legislature and was something only a federal government could do. The federal government would, of course, do just that. As soon as the last spike was driven in at Cragalatchee in 1885, the government didn't see a need for the Chinese immigrants who came to Canada to start a new life and literally built the rail line linking the country. While those immigrants had begun to integrate themselves into Canadian society, the government didn't want any more immigrants arriving. In 1885, anti-immigration sentiment in British Columbia was extremely strong. In 1884, the British Columbia government attempted to impose an annual poll tax of $10 on Chinese immigrants and to forbid them from buying land. The federal government would respond to this by organizing a royal commission to obtain the proof it needed to restrict Chinese immigration with the excuse that it was in the best interest of Canada. At first, Sir Johnny Macdonald, the Prime Minister at the time, was against implementing the measures to prevent Chinese immigration, but sentiment was so high he saw the Commission as a good way to pass the issue. The Royal Commission on Chinese Immigration was formed after it was ordered into creation by Macdonald on July 4th, 1884. Two men were appointed to the Commission. The first was Joseph Adolphe Charpeau, who would be the fifth Premier of Quebec and was currently a Member of Parliament and the Secretary of State of Canada. The second was John Hamilton Gray, the former Premier of the Colony of British Columbia, a former Member of Parliament, and currently a Member of the Supreme Court of British Columbia. Through the inquiry, the Commissioners spoke with 51 witnesses who submitted testimonies and answered 27 questions regarding Chinese immigrants, what should be done with them, and should they be restricted. Most of those interviewed gave negative testimonies against the Chinese, an example of this is that 20 of the witnesses stated that the Chinese had helped to develop the province, while at the same time 10 of those stated that the Chinese had also had a negative impact. The commission would speak primarily with individuals in Victoria and some in Nanaimo and New Westminster. Many critics felt that this skewed the report as it was in the countryside that they felt the Chinese men were taking jobs rather than in cities. The Commission also found that there were 157 Chinese women living in British Columbia and 10,335 Chinese men. The Commission looked at the immigration policies of other countries including the American Chinese Exclusion Act, the New Zealand Immigration Policy and the Australia Policy. Both of those countries had their own tax on Chinese immigrants. In 1885, the Commission would submit its final report, concluding that there was little evidence to support claims against Chinese immigration. The commissioner stated that the Chinese were judged on an unfair standard, but even with the lack of evidence of any threat of Chinese immigration, the report still recommended moderate legislation against immigration. The commission found three categories of opinions on Chinese immigrants. It would state, quote, 1. Of a well-meaning but strongly prejudiced minority whom nothing but absolute exclusion will satisfy. Two an intelligent minority who conceive that no legislation whatsoever is necessary that as in all business transactions the rule of supply and demand will apply and the matter regulate itself in the ordinary course of events 3 of a large majority who think there should be a moderate restriction based upon police financial and sanitary principles sustained and enforced by stringent local regulations for cleanliness and the preservation of health End quote. Only a small minority felt that no legislation was needed. Instead of pushing for an outright ban on Chinese immigration, the Commission stated that a head tax was the best option. The Commission found that the average Chinese laborer made $300 each year and saved $43 per year. Upon the report coming out, many in British Columbia were angry that it was not harsh enough in its wording. On March 6, 1885, a public meeting was held in Victoria attended by the Mayor and local members of Parliament to push the government for harsher action. A local MP, labelled as Mr. Duck, would tell the gathered meeting members, Whereas the actions of the Commission, Mr. Chaplow and Gray, appointed to inquire into the Chinese question, has to a great extent failed to recommend such measures as would be calculated to remedy the evil effects of the presence of Chinese in our midst, and if the recommendations were to be wholly acted on by the Government of Canada, it would necessarily fail to accomplish the object desired. A meeting was also held in Toronto where a J.W. Rooney would state that the advent of a large number of Chinese under prior contract and as semi-slaves in itself contrary to the spirit of our freedom, that they are a menace to the morality of this Christian country, are antagonistic to the interests of the country as a whole, and that their competition as slaves in the labour market is detrimental to the welfare of the working people of Canada. The Canadian government then passed the Chinese Immigration Act of 1885 due to the findings of the commission. It did not implement a $10 tax though, instead choosing a $50 tax on all Chinese immigrants except diplomats, government workers, tourists, merchants, scientists, and students. This act was the first in Canadian history to exclude immigrants simply on the basis of their ethnic origin. The Act didn't just put in the restriction of a head tax. It only allowed one Chinese passenger for every 50 tonnes of the total weight of a ship. The Act would state, quote, No vessel carrying Chinese immigrants to any port in Canada shall carry more than one such immigrant for every 50 tonnes of tonnage, and the owner of any such vessel who carries any number in excess of the number allowed by this section shall be liable to a penalty of $50 for each person so carried in excess. End quote. To put this into context, the restriction for European immigration was set at one person per two tons of weight. When Chinese immigrants arrived, they were also often put in detention facilities for weeks before they were even allowed into the country. Over the coming years, there would be several amendments to the original act. In 1887, any Chinese woman who married a non-Chinese man was exempt from the head tax. The amendment also allowed a Chinese individual to pass through the country by rail en route to another country. In 1902, the head tax had not slowed Chinese immigration, and the Sir Wilfrid Laurier government doubled the tax from $50 to $100. That same year, a second inquiry called the Royal Commission on Chinese and Japanese Immigration would suggest that the tax be increased to $500 to prevent Chinese immigration to the country. This huge increase made the tax equal to the cost of two homes at the time, or two years' salary. Parliament would pass that recommendation in 1903. On February 24th, 1902, the following was reported in the Vancouver province. Quote, it is announced that the majority report of the Chinese commission will recommend an increase of the head tax to $500. A minority report will recommend that the head tax be $300 for two years, then to be increased to $500 if $300 is found insufficient. The report is therefore practically unanimous. End quote. Stowaways were relatively common as immigrants tried to avoid the racist tax. On October 15, 1902, the Victoria Daily Times reported that stowaways were found on the Glen Ogle when it arrived in town, stating, quote, There were on board the steamer 18 Chinese stowaways. They were unable to pay their head tax and were accordingly turned over by the captain and to the police authorities. An information was also laid against them for being stowaways and the band were marched out to the provincial jail. End quote. In order to come to Canada, many Chinese immigrants would borrow the money to pay the tax, and then would spend years paying off the debt, well before they could save any to bring any members of their own family over.
1: So do, do, do you want to tell Emily, maybe you can tell Emily, how did you meet uh, uh, Yin Yin? <laughs> how did I meet her? Yeah. I said, I don't gosh, know. somebody bring it her to me, I just take a look at her.
0: <laughs> See, she... I said, you,
1: and then they ask you, you like her? I said, yes, that's it. Wow, <laughs> that's that my question. My okay, son. I married. I got the children. I came back. Don't See, at that time, the yet. Canadian government have a, law. Mm-hmm. have a law. You can go to home. Everybody leave kinder, happy, come back within two years. Naturally, I send money to support the family. Of course, she have to do her part. I have a lot of a field, She has to do the farming and look up the children for money. Sorry. The only source is from me. So, when, when did you go back to China again? To when I returned, my son was in high school, and my daughter was just ready to go, anyway they were at teenager.
0: Even with the tax, coming to Canada was an attractive option, as it was possible to earn 10 to 20 times more money in Canada. As Chinese immigration continued, some in power wanted to make sure that they could take things to an even greater extreme. Edward Gowler-Pryor, the MP for Victoria, would move the reading of a bill that would regulate immigration into Canada, refusing to allow anyone in who was not able to write in the European language. The Victoria Daily Times would report, The head tax proved insufficient to keep the Chinese and Japanese out, but the provisions of the bill would prove thoroughly effective. In 1906, Newfoundland was not part of Canada at the time, and it would introduce its own head tax that required Chinese immigrants to pay $300. That tax would remain in effect until 1949, when Newfoundland joined Canada. Further restrictions were put in place through an amendment in 1908, which no longer allowed students to be exempt from the tax. This was done because the government felt that Chinese immigrants would come to the country at 15, attend school for two years, and then once they hit the age of 17, they would switch to some other profession and avoid the tax. Duncan Ross, an MP from Ontario, would state in a discussion about the matter quote, We should confine this privilege to young Chinamen who come here solely for the purpose of receiving an education, the assumption being that they are going back to China when they receive that education. End quote. In 1910, the Chinese Immigration Nine Forms became the first mass use of identification photography in Canada predating driver licenses and passport photos by years. With the amount of money coming in from the head tax and a large portion of it going to British Columbia, there was resentment from the other provinces who wanted to get in on some of that money. Ontario was one such province, and in an article printed on November 12, 1910, it is stated, The Collector of Customs at Toronto, who evidently possesses the Ontario spirit, discovered that British Columbia was getting $800,000 to $900,000 per year out of the tax on incoming Chinamen, and he lost sleep in discovering how his own province could pull down some of this amount. In 1917, immigration officials were given the right to arrest any Chinese person that they believed to be entering Canada illegally. Ironically, on March 26, 1917, The report that the United States would charge a head tax on any Canadian moving into the country was met with anger by Canadians who, at the same time, supported the Chinese head tax for their own country. A story printed in the Regina Leader Post stated, After April, Canadians who want to locate to the United States will have to pay the head tax of $8. The act will even penalize Canadians living in the U.S. who have not become citizens. If they revisit their old home or are returning to their place of business, the head tax must be imposed. At the same time, due to so many young men serving in the Canadian Expeditionary Force, there was a shortage of labour and Chinese Canadians filled that need. Of course, when the war was over, most were fired from their job. The sad fact is that 300 Chinese Canadians volunteered to fight in the First World War, to fight for their new country, and even in the army they were subjected to racism and those in charge were very hesitant in giving an officer's commission to a Chinese-Canadian. In 1919, a Chinese-Canadian named Fong Soon was sent to court and charged with landing in Canada without paying a head tax. He actually paid the tax in 1901 when he first arrived, but in 1918 he made a short trip to the United States, but a BC court upheld that he did not have to pay the head tax again, as the registrations for travel outside Canada were meant for those who went to China, not to the United States. The Vancouver Sun would report, quote, Soon came here some years ago on payment of the head tax of $500, and his visit to Bellingham was of the clandestine order. He was arrested at Cloverdale and charged with having unlawfully entered Canada and was fined $100 and costs, and stood in peril of being deported to China. On appeal, it was contended on his behalf that he had been properly admitted to Canada on payment of the head tax he could not be convicted of unlawfully entering the country. End quote. Soon enough, the Canadian government made a change in 1921 when any Chinese person who left Canada for more than two years had to pay another head tax upon their return. In 1923, the Chinese head tax was finally ended. Over the course of the 38 years that it was in place, 82,000 Chinese immigrants paid $23 million in tax, or $1.2 billion today. Of that, 40% went to British Columbia. Of course, something else would come in place. T.G. McBride, the MP for the Caribou Riding, would state, If the Almighty had intended the people of the Orient and of Canada to live together, he would not have put the Pacific between them. The remark brought a round of laughter in the House of Commons while they debated banning Chinese immigration from coming to Canada. McBride would go on speaking not about allowing merchants into the country as well, stating Why let merchants come to run our cities? I think we have sufficient at present. Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King would state The head tax had been abolished because it had been considered out of character that a country calling itself Christian should handle a problem by imposing a head tax on working people, while at the same time subscribing funds for missionaries to go to China, to impart the principle of Christianity. The people of the Republic did not want to be placed under the indignity of exclusion, though they would not be offended by a law restricting immigration. Despite the efforts to stop Chinese immigration between 1881 and 1921, the Chinese population grew from 4,383 people to 39,587 people. On top of the head tax, Chinese Canadians could not practice law or medicine, could not vote in elections, could not hold public office, own crown land, or be employed at public works. Chinese Canadians were not allowed to swim in pools with white people and had to be segregated in movie theatres.
1: In those days, we were uh, worse than second-class citizens. We were regarded as aliens. We couldn't vote in election time. We weren't allowed to enter public facilities like uh, city-owned swimming pools and city-owned golf courses. So uh, Chinatown was our entire universe, because we were discriminated the moment we stepped outside of the Chinatown boundary.
0: Even provinces that had small Chinese-Canadian populations put in laws to restrict the immigration. For example, in 1901 Manitoba adopted language tests. These tests disqualified people as voters if they were unable to pass a language test in a selected European language. In Saskatchewan in 1912, the White Women's Labour Protection Act was passed that forbid any Chinese employer from hiring white women employees. Due to the costs in moving to Canada, it was mostly men who came to the country, creating a ratio where there were 28 Chinese men for every one Chinese woman. The hope for many of the men was to come to Canada, save their money, and then bring their families over. Unfortunately, the new act I was talking about by the government would put a stop to that completely. While the Chinese head tax ended, it wasn't because everyone realized it was racist. Instead, the Chinese Exclusion Act came into place. This banned all immigration to the country except for merchants, diplomats, and students. And that act would remain in place until 1947. In 1984, Margaret Mitchell, a member of parliament in Vancouver, raised the issue of repaying Chinese Canadians. Two of her constituents had paid the tax and wanted to be repaid their $500. This request was denied by the government. Soon after, 4,000 head taxpayers approached the Chinese-Canadian National Council to register their head tax certifications and to ask the government for redress. In 1988, the Japanese-Canadian Redress Agreement was signed by Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and the agreement acknowledged the injustices suffered by Japanese-Canadians during the Second World War, this was seen as an example of what could be done for Chinese-Canadians. In 1993, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney made an offer of individual medallions, a museum wing, and other collective measures. This was rejected by Chinese-Canadian national groups. Jean Chrétien would become Prime Minister that same year, and the Cabinet refused to provide an apology or redress. In 2000, Shaq Jiang Mak, a head taxpayer, along with the widow and son of another head taxpayer, Guangfu Li, launched a class-action suit that was struck down by the Ontario Superior Court.
2: Long Nui is 97, old enough to remember an ugly chapter of Canada's past, one that ripped her family apart for decades.
3: My grandmother was separated from her husband for the first 26 years of their marriage uh, due to a racist law. That calls
2: for justice. But her grandson fears she won't get it in the courts. An Ontario judge has just dismissed a class action suit on behalf of thousands of Chinese-Canadians seeking redress for the head tax. At the turn of the last century, after Chinese migrants finished building the National Railway, Canada decided it had no more use for them. Ottawa imposed a tax on all new arrivals from China, and only from China, a prohibitive $500 a head. Then in 1923, Canada banned immigrants from China altogether until after the war separating families for decades.
3: It's clearly an issue of justice, and that is all we're asking for.
2: Justice Peter Cumming agreed past laws were racist and discriminatory, but ruled there was no legal basis to force Ottawa to award damages now.
3: I think what the court is saying is that if you want to come before us and make a claim for redress, what we want to see is a more clear linkage to the current pain and suffering that you're feeling, rather than just the past statute.
2: But this lawyer for the plaintiffs is pleased. The judgment also calls on Parliament to act, where the courts cannot. Well, I think um, this, the decision clearly sends a message to the Canadian government that they have a moral obligation to redress, and it must be redressed now. Not a unanimous view among Chinese Canadians. World War II veterans like Park Chao remember the discrimination, but would rather forgive and forget.
1: Just forget about it and uh, go about their daily lives. And, uh, and then uh, ask the federal government to give them an apology.
2: But an apology is something the federal government is so far refusing to give. Ottawa says it wants to move forward in the fight against racism and not dwell on past injustice. And for the victims of the head tax, time and options are running out. Christina Lewan, CBC News, Vancouver.
0: Finally, on June 22, 2006, Prime Minister Stephen Harper apologized in the House of Commons to head taxpayers, their families, and the Chinese-Canadian community. He pledged a commitment to establish funds to create a community project that acknowledged the past of immigration restrictions. On June 28, Premier Danny Williams of Newfoundland and Labrador apologized for the $300 head tax.
3: The Government of Canada recognizes the stigma and exclusion experienced by the chinese as a result we acknowledge the high cost of the head tax meant that many many family members were left behind in china never to be reunited or that families lived apart and in in some cases in extreme poverty for years we also recognize that our failure to truly our failure to truly acknowledge these historical injustices has prevented many in the community from seeing themselves as fully Canadian. Par conséquent, Monsieur le Président, au nom de tous les Canadiens et du gouvernement du Canada, nous présentons des excuses complètes aux Canadiens et aux Canadiens d'origine chinoise pour la taxe d'entrée, et nous sommes profondément désolés de l'exclusion des immigrants qui a suivi. Therefore, Mr. Speaker, once again, on behalf of the people and government of Canada, we offer a full apology to Chinese Canadians for the head tax and express our deepest sorrow for the subsequent exclusion of Chinese immigrants. Ganadai dohi. In 2009,
0: 785 people received payments of $20,000 from the federal government. Most were the families of head taxpayers, while less than 50 head taxpayers received money for the injustice. The Government of Canada would establish the Community Historic Recognition Program, which would allocate $5 million to projects about Chinese immigration restrictions. This led to the creation of 33 art, music, theatre, oral history, film, and literature projects about the Chinese head tax. I hope you enjoyed that episode on the Chinese head tax, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden Doug Campbell Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lori Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rois, Luke Guess, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook, just go to facebook.com slash canadianhistoryx. You can find me on Twitter, my handle is Craig Baird, C R A I G B E A I R D, And you can find me on Instagram, just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, humanrights.ca, Wikipedia, Background to Chinese Head Tax, Road to Justice, the Vancouver Province, the Victoria Daily Colonists, the Regina Leader Post, the Vancouver Sun, and the Montreal Gazette.